0: you're listening to ggr pirate radio don't be a juice bag
1: i'm mike lunsford and this is stop me if you've heard this a podcast where we dig deeper into the stories you thought you knew When it comes to the most influential bands of the 90s, no conversation is complete without bringing up Nirvana. They exploded on the scene in the early 90s after plugging away since their founding in 1987. Their second album, Nevermind, brought attention to the often indie scene that was alternative rock. They went from virtually unheard of to the biggest band on the planet in a matter of one magical year, and that was 1991. But by 1994, their enigmatic and often misunderstood frontman Kurt Cobain was dead, and so was the most popular band in the world. As a lead singer of Nirvana, the flagship band of Generation X, Kurt Cobain found himself thrust into the role of spokesman for a generation, a title he never asked for nor ever wanted. This episode of Stop Me If You Heard This is about Nirvana and some of the incredible stories about their rise to fame and a tragic end to it all. The band Nirvana was founded in 1987 in Aberdeen, Washington by bassist Chris Novoselic and lead singer and guitarist Kurt Cobain. Kurt and Chris had gone to the same high school, Aberdeen High School, but never really connected. They ended up meeting because they both went to the practice sessions of one of the early grunge bands uh, in the Seattle scene, and that was the Melvins. The early days of the band were not easy. Uh, They went through a series of drummers before they settled on the drummer that everybody knows that they became famous with, and that's Dave Grohl bassist Chris Novoselic says that they knew two minutes into Grohl's audition that he was the missing piece and he was immediately offered the job. However, Grohl his memories were a little bit different uh, upon his uh, first meeting with Cobain and uh, Chris Novoselic. Uh, He said it was underwhelming at least. Uh, He was quoted as saying, I remember being in the same room with these guys thinking, what? That's Nirvana? Are you kidding? Because on the record cover they look like these psycho lumberjacks. I was like, what? That little dude and that big motherfucker? You're kidding me. I laughed. I was like, no way. Dave Girl joined Nirvana in September of 1990. He essentially joined the band at the perfect time, too, because Kurt wasn't happy with the way that their current record company, Sub Pop, which is based out of Seattle, was promoting them, and their recording sessions were gaining a lot of interest from other recording companies. Nirvana decided to look to a major label to sign with, and thanks to the recommendation of Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon, they signed with DGC. They decided to continue recording with the producer Butch Vig, but the sessions moved from Butch's studio in Wisconsin to Sound City Studios in Los Angeles, one of the most famous recording studios in the world. Their signature song off of what would become Nevermind was originally recorded on a boombox and sent to Butch as a demo. and had the following preamble from it. Hey Butch, we've got a new drummer and his name is Dave Grohl and he's the best drummer in the world. And here's that song, it Smells Like Teen Spirit. So let's talk about that title, Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's a song about rebellion, anarchy, and punk rock ideals, right? Nope. The song comes from the phrase, Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit, which friend Kathleen Hanna wrote on Kurt's wall uh, after a show one night. He thought it was this badass revolutionary statement when it was really just a dig at him. Kurt's girlfriend at the time, Toby Vale, who was also the lead singer of a punk band, uh, wore the deodorant Teen Spirit. So she was ripping on him for that. But Nirvana and never mind, subsequently exploded onto the scene. September of 1991 is when the album was released, uh, September 24th to be exact. But DGC, their record company, was hoping that it would sell a modest 250,000 albums. By Christmas of 1991, it was selling 400,000 copies a week. All said and done, the album sold 30 million copies, making one of the best-selling albums of all time, achieving diamond status. In fact, there's a copy in the Library of Congress as it is considered to be culturally, historically, or aesthetically important. Now here's another single from Nevermind, Come As You Are. The guys in Nirvana, thanks to the astronomical sales of Nevermind, were overnight millionaires, right? Nope, that's a common misconception. The album didn't score gold status until a month or two after its release, and the bulk of the sales arrived in 1992 or later. Most record companies only pay royalties twice a year, and payments lag, sales by several months. As a result, Cobain earned almost no money from Nevermind in 1991. His income that year totaled less than $30,000, and almost all of that was from a fall tour that Nirvana had done. When Kurt returned home to Olympia, Washington after recording, Nevermind in the spring, he found his belongings sitting in boxes by the curb. He had been evicted. He spent the first night sleeping in his car as DGC worked on the finishing touches to one of the biggest albums of all time. He had no idea, and really nobody else did either, that everything was about to change massively. With the success of the album came accolades, intense analysis, and scrutiny. It was a mystery to many renowned music critics. Uh, Karen Schomer of the New York Times, for example, wrote that what's unusual about Nirvana's Nevermind is that it caters to neither a mainstream audience nor the indie rock fans who supported the group's debut album. Michael Azarad, who wrote the Nirvana biography, Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana, wrote that Nevermind came along at exactly the right time. This was music by, for, and about a whole new group of young people who had been overlooked, ignored, or condescended to. In 2003, when Rolling Stone rated Nirvana as the 17th greatest rock album of all time, they wrote, No album in recent history had an overpowering impact on a generation, a nation of teens, suddenly turned punk, and such a catastrophic effect on its main creator. Gary Gersh, who signed Nirvana to Geffen Records, added that There is a pre-Nirvana and post-Nirvana record business. Nevermind showed that this wasn't some alternative thing happening off in a corner, and then back to reality. This is reality. Here's my personal favorite anecdote. Uh, from the praise nirvana received pitchfork an independent alternative music publication named the album the sixth best of the decade uh, noting that anyone who hates this record today is just trying to be cool and needs to be trying harder here's another smash hit off of nevermind it's in bloom Then there was that over-analysis that I mentioned. Critics picked apart Cobain's lyrics, looking for meaning from what they were deciphering. They would attribute psychological analysis of this meaning. Mind you, there were no lyrics listed in the liner notes, with the exception of some of Kurt's poetry. Dave Grohl stated that Kurt was always focused on the melodies and the music first, and the lyrics were almost an afterthought. It infuriated Cobain, though, as he was quoted, Why in the hell do journalists insist on coming up with second-rate Freudian evaluations of my lyrics when 90% of the time they're transcribing them incorrectly? And this brings up another common misconception. There's so much talk about Kurt being depressed or obsessed with death and hating that his music sounded mainstream, all of these different things. But most of this was just an act. Kurt was playing a part. He knew that no self-respecting punk rock icon could ever like his insane success. Many people point to the quote about his feelings on the sound of Nevermind. He was quoted as saying, Looking back on the production of Nevermind, I'm embarrassed by it now. It's closer to a Motley Crue record than it is to a punk rock record. Which is completely ridiculous because the producer of Nevermind, Butch Vig, had this to say about it. When we finished the record, Kurt loved it. He absolutely loved it. We did some playbacks and he said, oh my god, this is fucking incredible. Cut to a year later when it sold 10 million records and you have to disown it. You can't have any punk rock ethics and go, man, I love the way our last record sounds and I'm so happy it sold 10 million copies. While we're talking about things that were misconstrued, let's talk about Kurt Cobain and everybody's perception of what his personality was. He was complex. He lived the punk mindset. He hated misogyny. He was disgusted by the toxic masculinity concept decades before it became a hashtag. He identified with the homosexual community. In fact, he was quoted as saying uh, if he wasn't attracted to women, he would have been bisexual. He played benefits for LGBTQ uh, rights, supported alternative bands with LGBTQ members, uh, and even the liner notes of Incesticide said only this, if any of you in any way hate homosexuals, people of different color, or women, please do us one favor, uh, leave us the fuck alone. Don't come to our shows, don't buy our records. So he was very firm in this, but at the same time, too, he really contradicted a lot of the things that people assumed about the quote-unquote Generation X lifestyle. Uh, If any any attribute that you've heard about him could be confirmed is that he was moody and temperamental. Butch Vig mentioned that the typical lazy-doesn't-want-to-work-hard stereotype of the grunge Gen Xers was nonsense. Uh, This is a direct quote from Butch Vig. And the band sounded very tight. They had been uh, practicing every day. They were not slackers and really put the time in. And with most of the songs on the record, we'd usually get them in two or three takes. I just had to learn how to pick and choose those moments and figure out when was the right time to track something or record something. When I went to Dude Nevermind, I had an idea of what it was going to be like. I just knew I had to be ready to go. And when Kurt was on his A-game, we had to hit record. Now, this was in reference to Kurt's inspiration coming in waves. He would be highly motivated and creative and record amazing tracks. And then after an hour or so, he'd shrink into a corner and not want to talk to anybody. And Dave Grohl kind of spoke to this, too, uh, later stating that Kurt was so many different things. He was funny or shy or this outgoing, larger-than-life persona. He could be sweet or he could be fucking wicked. He could be intimidating. So Kurt was kind of all over the place. He was a duality. He was complex, just like most of us are. Between Nevermind and Nirvana's second big studio album, In Utero, a great deal changed. Nirvana was the biggest band in the world, and Kurt had fallen in love and married another musician uh, by the name of Courtney Love. Throughout most of Kurt's adult life, he struggled with chronic stomach pain, bipolar disorder, and was heavily into drugs. In meeting Courtney Love, he met a kindred spirit, someone who was as anti-establishment as him, a gifted artist, and a drug addict as well. Their whirlwind love affair seemed equally destructive for them both. When it was revealed that Courtney was pregnant, the media had a field day with their drug-fueled lifestyle. In fact, it was this media coverage that makes for one of my favorite Nirvana stories, and that's Kurt Cobain and Nirvana versus Axl Rose and Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses and Nirvana were arguably two of the biggest bands in the world, but they represented vastly different ideals. Axel was initially a Nirvana fan, in fact, even wearing a hat with the band's logo in the video for Don't Cry, but the feeling was not mutual. Promoting Nevermind in 1991, Kurt made every effort to draw a sharp line between what the two bands meant. We're not your typical Guns N' Roses type of band that has absolutely nothing to say, Kurt told Seconds. The following year, he told a Singapore publication Rebellion is standing up to people like Guns N' Roses. Despite Kurt's trash talk, Axel was determined to bring Nirvana on tour with Guns N' Roses. They were about to do this massive stadium tour with Metallica and they wanted Nirvana to open. Dave Grohl would later recall. So Axel had been calling Kurt non-stop. One day we're walking through an airport and Kurt says, fuck, Axel Rose won't stop calling me. But it it turned. It turned really, really quickly, as a matter of fact, in 1992, Axel calls Kurt and Courtney fucking junkies on stage. Eventually Kurt's negative comments got to Axel and it just wore him down. And as was his style, Axel tore into Kurt from the stage, referencing widespread rumors that Francis Bean Cobain had been born with birth defects because of Courtney Love's drug use. Essentially calling Kurt a snob, Axel mocked the term alternative, saying, The only thing that means to me is somebody like Kurt Cobain and Nirvana who is basically just a fucking junkie with a junkie wife. And if the baby's born deformed, I think they both ought to go to prison. That's my feeling. The feud hit its boiling point at the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards. Backstage, Axel and his current girlfriend, model Stephanie Seymour, strolled past Kurt and Courtney, who were sitting with their newborn daughter. Courtney taunted Axel Rose, asking him to be Francis' godfather, and Axel exploded at Kurt You shut your bitch up, or I'm taking you down to the pavement. An incredulous Kurt turned to Courtney and barked sarcastically Shut up, bitch! All those backstage laughed at the tensed moment and sarcastically funny response Cobain had to Axel's aggression. MTV News commentator Kurt Loder was quoted later as saying, It was like two worlds colliding. This was sort of an important moment in the way fashions changed, and you really saw the culture of music going in a slightly different way. Nirvana was at the VMAs in the first place because they were there to perform, and in rehearsals, they had asked MTV to let them play one of their new songs off in utero, uh, "Rape Me. Kurt was pretty adamant about this, and he really wanted to play it, but the MTV brass was like, No, you're not playing Rape Me. That's not happening. So they agreed that uh, Nirvana would play Lithium, which was their new single off of Nevermind.
0: I'm so happy cause today from my friends and ripped my head. I'm so ugly, that's okay cause so... Cause I found God
1: When they went to play... Lithium, it brought the house down. They pump-faked MTV, actually, into thinking they were going to play the previously Forbidden Rate Me by playing the first few bars of the controversial song before switching to Lithium. But the song went off the rails. Bassist Chris Novoselic was having technical issues with his rig and went to throw his bass in the air and catch it. A stun he had pulled off countless times before. However, Chris hit himself in the head. Um, This is his direct quote. I'm plugged into some awful bass rig that's distorting terribly. I can barely hear what I'm playing, and the tone deteriorates into an inaudible mess. Fuck it. Time for the bass toss shtick." Up he goes. The only time I've ever dropped it was in front of 300 million people. Ouch. He claims he feigned injury, but Dave Grohl and Kurt both thought he had knocked himself out. So they did the only logical thing they could think of. Trash the stage. They destroyed their equipment, and then as they were going off stage, Dave Grohl threw in a jab at Axel, yelling into the mic, asking him where it was. As the band went backstage, Kurt took one last opportunity to stick it to Axel. He saw a setup for their later performance where Guns N' Roses would be playing a duet with Elton John. There were two pianos set up, and what did Kurt do? As he put it, I spit on Axel's keyboard. It was either that or beat him up. We're down on this platform that's brought up uh, hydraulically. I saw his piano there, and I just had to take the opportunity and spit big goobers all over his keyboard. Nirvana guitar tech Ernie Bailey recounts the story. Kurt came in laughing his ass off. He told me he'd spit across the keys of Axel's piano as he left the stage. So we're laughing about that, watching the ceremony on TV when these two pianos come up and Kurt goes, Oh, fuck, I spit on Elton John's piano by accident. (laughs) I'm not sure which was funnier, Kurt's horror on what he had done or the sight of Elton John hammering away on that piano. Now, the story fits with Dave Grohl, uh, what he recently stated about his time with Nirvana and the biggest misconception people have about the band. He said it was a bummer. It was always depressing. It was always sad. Kurt was moody, and it affected the whole band. To quote Dave, it wasn't always a bummer. It was kind of like living in a loud, distorted version of Monty Python. And so when it gets dark, it gets fucking dark. But it's when it's not, it's fucking hilarious. Grohl says that most people imagine Nirvana just bleak and grim all the time. It just wasn't He insists There were times that were really, really great. And this is going to be the first ever two-part episode of Stop Me If You Heard This, just because there is so much great content that I have about Nirvana. They're one of my favorite bands, what can I say? Part one, all about the rise of Nirvana, their meteoric success and the incredible results they got from Nevermind. Part two, all about In Utero, all about the MTV Unplugged sessions and, unfortunately, the untimely death of kurt cobain so stay tuned for part two of stopping if you heard this all about nirvana
0: this has been pirate radio network production juice bags (laughs) 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 yeah boy